Over these Sundays together in Advent, our sermon series is entitled, Prepare Him Room. And this morning, we're turning to the epistle of John. And this brief study in the Johannine epistles will be today and next week as we move our way towards Christmas itself. And so let's begin. 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John writes these words. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. Christmas is that time of year, which I have to confess is my favorite time of year. And I have a fondness and an affection for Christmas trees and decorations and cards and Christmas parties and concerts and Christmas songs and carols. And over the last couple of Decembers, I have been in some ways soliciting your help at the beginning of the sermon on Sunday mornings. And in the past, I've asked you what has been the most uh, popular Christmas songs on the radio, and you have participated and answered. Last year, in fact, we looked at what are the most popular Christmas carols. And quite frankly, I've made it pretty easy for you. So, this morning, no more Mr. Nice Guy. It's going to be tough. I'm going to give you the first couple of lines, and then you have to provide the last few lines. Now, let me start off nice and simple. Grandma got run over by a there you are. Choir, keep an eye on them. They're a little sneaky, so keep an eye on them. And here is our first Christmas song, and I need you to give me the following, uh, the end words. Bring it up for us, if you can, please. Have a holly, jolly Christmas. It's the best time of the year. I don't know... Well done, choir, thank you. I think you are definitely on the ball with that. Next one, be careful. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock, jingle bell swing, and jingle bells ring. Snowing and blowing up. Congregation, frankly, you were disappointing. Choir, thank you. That was excellent. Just excellent. Let's move to another one. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And that lies at the very heart of Christmas. John Wesley, when he, or Charles Wesley rather, when he was writing in 1739, put together what is one of the great Christmas hymns. And let me ask this morning by going a little deeper. 
If it crossed your mind to write a Christmas carol, how would you begin? What would be in those opening words that would be compelling, inviting, that would capture the heart and mind and soul of the person singing? Where would you begin? How would that hymn build verse by verse? How would you finish it? What would you put in as a chorus or a refrain? And while you're thinking of that, let me go a little deeper again. If you were given the opportunity to write a gospel, now there's a thought. Where would you begin? Where would you start the story? When Matthew writes his gospel, Matthew begins in a way that we have come to know and are very familiar with. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. And Matthew starts with nativity. When Mark is writing his gospel, Mark writes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Mark goes back 750, 800 years and quotes from Isaiah. Matthew focuses nativity. Mark focuses on prophecy. When Luke is writing his gospel, he has a slightly different slant. And Luke writes, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. Not nativity, not prophecy, but he writes history. Tying it down to a time and a place, history. And when John writes his gospel, and John wrote his gospel as an older man, as he did with his epistle, probably 85 to 90, somewhere in there. And John doesn't focus on nativity or history or prophecy he begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. And here in 1 John, you see echoes of that same principle, similar language, that which was from the beginning. In other words, John is taking us way back to timeless truths, eternal mysteries. Before time and space and matter existed, there was God. That which was from the beginning. That's where John is taking us in his epistle. And as you read this epistle, it strikes you a little strange initially. When Paul writes some of his epistles, he begins to the church in Thessalonica, to the church in Corinth, to the holy and faithful in Christ at Colossae. Paul tells you who is writing, who he's writing to. That was the typical pattern of antiquity. Today, we put our name at the end if we even send a letter today. But not John. John doesn't tell you who's writing, and he doesn't tell you who it's from. 
And that makes it a little stark, a little surprising. Why would he write like this? It's almost as if John is in such a hurry to get his letters onto the papyrus when he was writing. It is just flowing out of him. That which was from the beginning. But please don't misunderstand. This isn't lazy writing. This isn't, he couldn't simply wait to get it down. He couldn't, but it is carefully and intentionally and purposefully written. And New Testament scholars tell us this. They tell us that the formal interpretation of Scripture is known as hermeneutics. And there is a hermeneutic triad. And this is what they tell us. They tell us that within that hermeneutic triad, there are three lenses that you look through all at the same time. And the first is theological. The second is literary. And the third is historical. So put it in your mind, hermeneutical triad. You look at Scripture through a theological lens, through a literary lens, and through a historical sense. And the first lens, and the first two of them we're going to focus on this morning, I honestly hope this will not be overly complicated or unnecessarily so, but I hope it will help us understand what John was writing, why he was writing it, and why it is absolutely crucial for us to grasp what he's writing. And so, with all of that in mind, let's look at the passage. And he begins, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, have to and excuse me, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now, here is John encouraging his readers to grasp the enormity of what's taking place here. And what he's telling us is this. Notice how he phrases it, that which... And he does that several times. Can we bring that one back up in the screen, please, that underlines that which? It's the previous slide. There it is. And if you're looking at that this morning, you are asking yourself one question. And you may be sitting there saying, Richard, I appreciate all that you've been saying about eternity past. I appreciate that here is John writing of eternal mysteries, timeless truths, not focusing on Mary or Joseph or angels or shepherds or the innkeeper or even the manger. He's focused on eternity past. And if he's focused on eternity past and highlighting for us that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he wasn't coming into existence then because he had existed since before the foundation of the world, before anything was made. He existed with his Father and the Spirit in eternity and if he's focused on Jesus, and you may well be saying, why on earth does he use a neuter pronoun as opposed to a masculine pronoun? That which, really? Which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked at? Is that how you refer to someone? That which? Why doesn't he simply write, he who was from the beginning? He 
whom we have heard. He whom we have seen with our eyes. He whom we have looked at or hands have touched. We proclaim him this word of life. So why doesn't John do that? Well, John is saying to his first century readers and every century first that he is carefully, deliberately, intentionally structured his writing to say to us it is focused on Christ who existed before matter and time and space itself, but if we are paying attention to the nouns, we also need to pay careful consideration to the verbs. Notice how it reads. It doesn't stop that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. And the temptation might be, Richard, is John talking about the gospel, the wonderful love and grace of God. Is that what he's talking about? Could we interpret it? The gospel which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we could say that. But when you get to the third line, which we have seen with our eyes, we don't usually talk of a gospel in that sense, which we have looked at, our hands have touched. Yeah, probably not a gospel. And what he's saying to us is this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. The language John is using is language of intent, calm, continuous consideration, contemplation of an object. And that object remains before a person, and it's as if John is holding it up and looking at it from multiple sides, and you begin to realize it's much greater than a thing because he has heard it, he has touched it, he has seen it. And John brings us to the climax of the sentence when he does what? This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And it's the relationship between word and life John is seeking to get over to us. He's not simply saying God existed before eternity passed. Isn't it spectacular? Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it absolutely unprecedented that he came into our world. And he doesn't stop there because John is saying it is so much greater than the existence of God, but he's come into our world so we could know him and have life through him. That's the natural reading of the word. It builds and builds and builds and builds and builds to this we proclaim concerning the word that is life, is the literal translation. And John is highlighting that we can have life in him, intimacy with him, be renewed, transformed, deep abiding joy in him. That's what John is writing. 
350 years later, and we said it moments ago as part of our liturgy this morning, the Nicene Creed. And if we go to the Nicene Creed, what is it that the words tell us? They tell us, and it's straightforward, we have it. Can you bring it up for me, please, this morning? We have it on screen, eternally begotten of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Systematic theologians talk of consubstantial with the Father. By that they mean this, of the same nature, one in essence, of the same substance. And that's what John is telling us. They simply are reflecting the teaching of the New Testament. Very God of very God, who was there in the beginning, has now come into our world to give as life to forgive and cleanse and renew and refresh us. That's what's going on here. All of that is happening right in front of us. And you may be here this morning and saying, okay, Richard, I appreciate what you're saying. I like the theological lens and the literary lens, and I see what John is doing carefully with significant substance, and I understand what he's saying. But this morning, Richard, give me something to go home with. Give me something to do. Give me something that will increase my faith this week. Let me grow in my faith. And if you are asking of that this morning, notice how he finishes his opening words, beginning at verse 2. He writes of Christ, the life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father, Son, and His Son, Jesus Christ. That word fellowship is inherently a Christian word. It means intimacy. It means closeness. It means a relationship far greater than any other you have ever experienced, and you can have it with he who was from the beginning. That's the point he's making. And notice how he closes, and we write this to make our joy complete. Why would the birth of Christ make their joy and our joy complete? Let me ask you to use your imagination once again. And imagine you are 25 years old. You're a young lady. You've been dating your boyfriend for the last 14 to 18 months. You have fallen in love, deeply fallen in love. He has proposed to you You are now engaged. He's given you a ring. 
And when there is no one else around, everyone else is out for the evening and you are in on your own, what do you do? Do you just sit there watching Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus Channel? What you start to do is this. Go through to your bedroom and you open up the cupboard and you look at tops and dresses and then you start, would that work with that top and would it work? And then you look at the inside and you look at the outside and you think, now, how can I let others see this without being too obvious? How can I begin to have a conversation that necessitates me holding my hand up at my face? How can I stand the next time I'm in company with friends who don't know just enough to kind of show off my new ring and they will glance and realize what's happened and you begin to move in that direction. And for all, we smile at that and we should. It is a joyous occasion. But that young lady at some point is going to take that ring off and hold it up and look at it under the light and she will begin to smile and her heart will be thrilled and she says, he loves, he loves me and her life is changing and it won't be the same again. That's why John is writing and we write this so that your joy may be complete. Very God very God, eternally begotten of the Father, light from light, true God from true God. And he loves you. That's the point he's making. That's why he writes the way he does. We began by looking at Christmas songs and a Christmas carol. Let me close with the words of a Christmas carol. Words that you will be familiar with. Words that you can read on the screen. And Wesley gets it absolutely right. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic host proclaim. Christ is born in Bethlehem. That's exciting. That's good news. And he came into this world that you would come to know him. And this week, when you are writing that 103rd Christmas card, when you have licked the envelope and put the stamps on it, and the tree is still to be decorated, and there's seven more parties still to go to, there are six more gifts still to buy, in your mind take for yourself a quiet moment. And rather than do, try to be, to be refreshed and to be renewed and to allow your heart to soar heavenwards, knowing, knowing his love for you and find yourself shaking your head in absolute joy and all and gasp for breath 
And imagine yourself standing there in the manger. And imagine yourself kneeling down in absolute wonder and worship and adoration. Because when you are there, then your joy is complete. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture today. Thank you for its challenge on our lives. Enable us, please, in these these days leading up to Christmas to grasp again the eternal significance of the unprecedented magnificence of the birth of Christ. And may we be moved to incredulity, to gaze in wonder at his birth and give thanks for him. In Jesus' name we pray.